Well, what do you picture in your mind when I mention Noah and the ark? What do you picture in your mind? I think of a really big wooden ship resting on a grassy hill with two of every kind of zoo animal marching in a colorful parade two by two in a line. Noah and Mrs. Noah are there smiling under the bright, shiny sky that's emblazoned with a lovely rainbow. It's obviously a post-flood picture I have in mind, and it's a very pleasant picture. It's probably the picture in a lot of children's Bibles. It's pretty. It's even idyllic. But what do you picture in your mind when I mention Noah and the flood? Not Noah and the ark, but Noah and the flood. Is the picture any different? It should be. The flood isn't pretty, nor is it idyllic. It's one of the most real things that we could ever think about. Because it's a picture of God's judgment on man's sin. It is sure, and it is certain, and it is real. The flood is the terrible and just judgment of God on man's sin. To understand the flood, we must understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Man's sin, his rejection of the Lord God, is the reason for the flood. God is holy and just and good. It's man's sin that's the reason for the flood. But the ark, the ark is the mercy of God on particular sinners. To understand the ark, we must understand the grace of God, his desire and purpose in saving sinners. Through faith in his promise of the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ, God saves the unrighteous from his just wrath. Our salvation in, by faith in Jesus Christ comes through God's judgment on our sin on Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time. Our salvation by faith in Jesus Christ comes through God's judgment on our sin on Jesus Christ. That's what the flood and the ark are a picture of. Salvation through judgment. The flood and the ark picture the gospel, which Paul sums up in one verse. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Salvation through judgment. If you want to follow along on the sermon outline provided in the bulletin, you'll see this theme. God is glorified in the salvation of sinners through the judgment of sin as pictured in Noah, but as fully accomplished in Jesus Christ. So let's begin reading. I'm going to read not all at once, but as we go along... Uh, hopefully that will save us a little time because we're going to cover the whole flood in the next two hours or slightly less, or slightly less. This is the word of God in Genesis chapter 6 beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now, this is the third set of generations, and it's a long passage, beginning in chapter 6 and running through chapters 7, 8, and 9. But it only covers one generation, really. It's only all about Noah. We won't hear about Shem, Ham, and Japheth until later in chapter 10. And Noah is described in very laudable terms. The, 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 the Bible isn't flippant in, uh, you know, in, in handing out uh, compliments. Uh, these, are, these are laudable terms that Noah is described in. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. To say that Noah walked with God is to say that he was like Enoch, isn't it? We talked about Enoch last year. Noah, Noah lived his life walking in the ways of God and pleasing God. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says that Noah was a herald of righteousness with seven others when God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Noah has something to say to his ungodly neighbors. He's a herald. He's shown light on their ungodliness by his life and by his preaching. Noah's life was blameless. Now that's unique to everyone else in his generation, isn't it? Noah followed the laws of God. No, the Ten Commandments had not been written in stone yet. And it's interesting that Moses, who brought down the Ten Commandments, is the one writing this account. But they were in effect. The law of God's in effect. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself is always in effect. Adam, the very first man, had already broken the first table of the law. He did not love God when he ate of the fruit that God commanded him not to eat. And Cain, Adam's first son, had already broken the second table of the law when he did not love his brother but murdered Abel. And mankind has only heaped up more blame upon himself in the eyes of God. In chapter 6, verse 5, just a few verses before this, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. Noah was peculiarly blameless and probably not very popular in his generation. And Noah was a righteous man, which begs the question, how did Noah manage to become a righteous man when all around him were not? These, the answer to that question is in the previous verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These two things go together. Noah became righteous the same way people today become righteous. By the grace of God. By the grace of God. That word favor is the Hebrew word for grace. Before Noah was righteous, Noah was the object of God's grace. Hebrews 11, verse 7 is very helpful here. You know that is the hall of faith in the New Testament. It reads, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By the grace of God, Noah hears the gospel and believes. And his faith in the gospel is then credited to him as righteousness. We know how this works. This is New Testament stuff we're familiar with. Noah was a sinner just like you and me. By the grace of God, he believed the gospel. What gospel? What gospel did Noah have? The same gospel that we proclaim. 
the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah believed in God's promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. Well, Scott, that doesn't sound like the gospel as we know it today. But it is. It is that same gospel. It is precisely that exact same gospel. It's just our understanding of it that is being developed through the Scripture, from Genesis through the Old Testament to Jesus in the New Testament. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. Everything he is, everything he has accomplished, everything that he will do. What we have in greater fullness, although even our gospel understanding will not be complete until eternity. What we have in a fuller sense, Noah has in seed form, but it is the same thing. Our understanding of the gospel is developing right under our noses here in Genesis. To the promise of a serpent crusher is added the promise of a future in Eve being the mother of all mankind. And added to that is the promise of true justice in Cain. And added to that is the promise of a future of walking with God in Enoch. All these things are snowballing the gospel. And added to that is the promise of relief and comfort in Lamech's naming of his son Noah. And added to that is our understanding that salvation comes through judgment, the judgment of the flood in the ark. The gospel is being developed right under our very nose. The gospel in seed form is still the gospel. And the righteousness of Noah is actually the righteousness of Christ that God has credited to Noah by his faith in Christ. That is the grace of God that we see in salvation. Just so you don't miss it. There's one more note of hope for us here before we're reminded of the extent of sin of man on the earth and the intensity of God's judgment. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The mention of Noah's sons implies a future. It's a soft note, but it's a note of hope just before the storm. So let's pick up in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is, being, the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth." You know, three times we are told that the world is corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Right there. It's corrupt. It's as violent as it can get. And all flesh is violent towards God and violent towards their neighbors. When we see flesh, we read man here. In contrast to Noah, they're all lawbreakers who have corrupted their own way on the earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Look at the text in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, highlights the sinfulness of man. That's what we looked at last week. Verses 8 to 10 highlight the righteousness of Noah. And then verses 11 to 13, which we just read, repeats and so further emphasizes the sinfulness of man. Before we lead into God's judgment in the flood, we need to understand that the problem was the sinfulness of man. God is not a flippant or wildly reactionary, emotional guy. 
No, that describes us. God is holy and just. How serious is the holiness of God and the justice of God? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And in Genesis chapter 6, God saw that everything was ruined, ruined, ruined by man's sin. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. See, the sobering thing is that that is not an overreaction. The extent of God's judgment is the extent of man's sin. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The intensity of God's judgment matches the intensity of man's sin. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The intensity of that matches, it's, it's commensurate. The Hebrew word used for corruption or ruin is the same word that God uses for destroy. You've ruined it, I'm going to ruin it. Death is not too harsh of a punishment for sin. How serious is God about his holiness and his creation and his justice? Because man has ruined creation, God will ruin it. His life and death, it's life and death serious. The flood is enormous in its physical scope, but in its theological scope. This is, this is huge. See, I think, we've, I think we've come to, by what we might picture in our heads, we've lost the weightiness of the reality of the flood. It's kind of one of those things on our orthodox checklist. What, you believe in things like the flood? And you'll tell, oh yeah, we we'll believe in that, check, move on. Pretty skies, pretty boat, lots of animals. We've lost our understanding of the weightiness of the reality of the flood. Our sin is so great and grievous to God's heart that he makes the world a massive graveyard. When we read the flood account, we're supposed to come to this conclusion on our own. That we deserve the judgment of God on sin, and the just judgment is death. We're supposed to come to that on our own when we read this. Because the greatest injustice in the world is people not worshiping God as they should. That is why God is just to kill everyone on the planet. You don't like to hear that said out loud. But that's what God says to Noah. Look at verse 14. This is kind of a, kind of a funny thing for God to start with next. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. 
Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of blood that is eaten, excuse me, every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Well, immediately after announcing that this flood is coming, this flood of judgment on sin, God announces to Noah the means of his salvation through the flood of his judgment. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Noah, build a cargo ship, something you've never seen. To navigate a worldwide flood, something else you've never seen. And Noah does it by faith. Faith in God's word about things that he's never seen. You can't miss this connection. Salvation through judgment comes by faith. It comes by faith in the gospel. And salvation looks like something. When we look at Noah, salvation looks like building a cargo ship for the next 100 years of his life. Noah was 500 when he had his three sons. That's in chapter 5, verse 32. He was 600 when the flood came, chapter 7, verse 11. So it's a reasonable guess that Noah and his family spent all of their money and all of their resources and all of their time and all of this effort to build an ark. A cubit's roughly 18 inches. So an ark 450 feet long, you know, one and a half football field, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, with a roof that allows for ventilation. He covered it with pritch, pitch to make it waterproof. It isn't pretty, but it's functional. You know, you know Jesus was beaten ugly before he went to the cross to be nailed to the cross as our ark of salvation. This Hebrew word describes only two arks in the Bible. The other ark is the pitch-covered basket that Moses was put in and set afloat on top of the waters of the Nile to live or die. Same thing here. Noah's going Noah's to get in an ark and put on top of the water to live or die. And Moses, who lived by the grace of God, is the one writing about Noah's ark here. I think he's got an idea about what he's writing. Verse 18 is the first word to use the word, or first uh, use of the word covenant in the Bible. And I read that to say that God has a covenant that he has already established that he's going to now establish with Noah as well. We'll unpack that next week, Lord willing, uh, in chapter 9. God explains to Noah that when the ark is built, Noah and his family will bring representatives of all living animals on the earth and the food supplies into the ark. And we're told ahead of time that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah obeyed God. Noah's my hero. This morning, Noah's my hero. He ought to be yours. Oh, if I could just do that. I know more true things of God than I can obey in my life because of my sinfulness. Oh, to obey God. 
to just obey God. Noah's a hero. Righteousness, by the grace of God, looks like something. Remember Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, is in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Can you imagine Noah explaining to the most wicked generation on earth ever that he's building an ark, which they've never seen, to survive a flood, which they've never seen, because God told him so. Noah was the laughingstock of the known world. The world is amusing themselves with the latest Noah jokes. Have you heard the latest Noah joke? How many Noahs does it take? Can you imagine living in open ridicule every day for 100 years? And it was a violent and lawless generation. It's not unreasonable to imagine evil men vandalizing the ark or withholding supplies or initiating taxes on cargo ships. I mean, how many times might Noah's efforts have been thwarted? How many times did he have to redo work he'd already done? Even so, Noah was a herald of righteousness, according to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2. And in the face of persecution, Noah proclaims the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. He tells them of the coming judgment and calls them to repent and believe the word of God about the ark he's building. He's telling them about the ark. How can Noah commit to walk in righteousness with God in the face of humiliation and persecution for a hundred years? There are two things in the passage that tell us. The second one is one day at a time. All the years of every man's life listed in chapters 6 and 7 are, are lived one day at a time. You see, having committed to God first, that's the second thing. Noah didn't commit to the ark first. He committed to God first. That having been done, all the other decisions fall in line, don't they? If you would commit your life to serve God instead of yourself, you will know what to do when you wake up tomorrow. You won't have to rethink it or start from scratch. And when you wake up the next day, decision's already made. I know who I serve this morning. I don't know what it is that I'll have to do this morning, but I'm committed to God. That's how Noah did it. Have you done that? Have you committed yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you waking up every morning wondering who you're going to serve? Noah did all that the Lord commanded him today. And he went to bed. And he got a good night's sleep. And he woke up the next day. And God gave him grace to do it over again one more day. He didn't have to commit to everything that could go wrong. He just had to commit to God who makes right out of all wrongs and who gives him grace for each day. That's how Noah built the ark. And that's how we walk in righteousness with God in this fallen world one day at a time, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, the time of God's judgment is at hand in verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your, all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. 
Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the each on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and wife, his sons' wives with them, went into the ark to escape the floodwaters. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They were, they and Every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to its kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They all went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. You know, so at the end of chapter 6, God says what he's going to do. And now the Lord's giving instructions, and Noah does it. We have all of this stuff that's repeated and repeated and repeated. Verses 1 to 5, God instructs Noah to gather his family and the animals and to load up the ark. He receives more detailed instruction to bring not just one pair, but seven pairs of the clean animals. And we'll see why later, for sacrifices and for food. And then God gives Noah a seven-day lead time to load the ark. But the seven days may be for more than just loading the ark. If my math is correct, Methuselah died in Noah's 600th year. And if several commentators in Jewish history is correct, they suspect that these seven days of lead time are seven days of mourning Methuselah. Which is like one last opportunity for sinners to repent. At the death of this great man, all of the men named in Seth's line in chapter 5 died before the flood. When Noah was 600 and the seven days were past, the rain came. And Noah and his family and all flesh entered the ark. We're told four times in this passage, Noah did as God commanded him. You've noticed already as we've read the language of creation repeated. The earth, the waters, all the animals, male and female and their kind. That's language from creation account. And that helps us to see the momentous act that God is doing in the flood. In the flood, God is decreating the earth. In creation, God separated the waters from the waters and made dry land appear. But as a result of man's sin, God causes the fountains of the deep, the waters below, to burst forth, and God removes his restraining hand from the waters he had placed above and in the heavens, and they were opened. I mean, to a great extent, God unforms 
the earth that he had formed in creation. And then Noah leaves the earth to get into the ark. And the representative animals leave the earth and get into the ark. God is depopulating the earth of living things. To a great extent, God empties the earth that he had filled in creation. In creation, we had forming and filling, and now we have deforming and emptying in his judgment. God himself closes and locks the door in the side of the ark. The flood is catastrophic because man's sin is catastrophic. It's man's sin that is ruinous to the extent that God decreates what was once good but is now corrupt, and he is the one who closes the door. Pick up in verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose up high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the high mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was, breath, was the breath of life. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the judgment of God. Notice, notice how the intensity of God's judgment builds verse by verse. In verse 17, the waters increased. In verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. In verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains were covered. In verse 20, the waters prevailed so that the, the mountains were deeply covered under the waters. It's troubling. It's troubling to us to hear that God blotted out the life of every living, breathing thing that was on the face of the earth. But that's what it means when we say the wages of sin is death. That's what that means. And this is the wrath of God prevailing over the highest and worst of man's sins. This is the sobering reality we should, or that we want to, selectively forget. This is the picture we don't want to see. It's the weightiness of God's just wrath on all sin. And it reaches its high watermark here at the end of chapter 7. But there is another side to this coin. God himself shut Noah in the ark. Noah is safe and secure by the hand of God. This is the pinnacle of God's decreation in the flood. And then chapter 8 begins with God's recreation after the flood. Look at eight, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were in, with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, 
And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. She put out, so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in this evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off of the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. You see, the flood is both decreation and recreation. And at the halfway point of the flood, we hear these amazing words, but God remembered Noah. Those are the words that mark the turning point in the flood. Now, God hadn't forgotten Noah. God wasn't sitting there one day and out of his peripheral vision caught a little, caught a little black box floating on the waters and he remembered Noah no, the word Noah, or the word remember, means God acted on what he already knows. God acts on what he already knows, and having completed his judgment on sinful man, God prepares a world for righteous Noah. We can actually see the days of creation in their corresponding days of recreation. In chapter 8, verse 1, the word for wind is the same word as used for the Holy Spirit. The wind blowing over the waters corresponds to the Holy Spirit hovering over the deep in day one of creation. In chapter 8, verse 2, the closing of the fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens correspond to the expanse in day two of creation. In verses 3 to 5, the waters receding to reveal the mountaintops corresponds to God creating the dry land on day three of creation. He's recreating for Noah this earth. Day four of creation is seen in Noah's releasing the birds into the sky. In verses 16 to 12. And day six of creation is seen in the animals walking on the earth again in verses 17 to 19. Noah was inside the ark for over a year. That, that 40 day thing, yeah, that was just the rain. Noah was in the ark for over a year. I, I, put, a, I put a chart on the back of your uh, sermon outline to help, help just kind of walk through those verses in that timeline. It was over a year with his family and all the animals inside the ark. There's a little word association going on in verse 4 in that the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. It's a word association with Noah's name, which means rest, and his father Lamech's hope that Noah would bring rest 
to the ground, and Noah has. Mount Ararat is at the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, implying a new recreated Eden by its location. And Noah's going to be the new Adam. The flood points back to creation and ahead to a new creation. Noah points back to being like Adam, and Noah points forward to being like Jesus Christ. And God has remembered Noah and brought him salvation through judgment. And now Noah remembers God. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. I mean, you've got to see this picture. The very first thing that man does, the very first thing that Noah does in this new creation is worship God. Worship God. And Noah makes a burnt offering to God of some, some of every clean animal, which, which, seems, to, which seems to be a, a consecration offering. The new recreated earth and life in it is consecrated to God. God's judgment has blotted out sinful man. God's judgment has cleansed the earth of mankind's corruption. Mostly. Mostly. You know, after this enormous catastrophic judgment, the Lord, uh, he, uh, he was referred to, by the way, as God throughout the flood. Now he's referred to as the Lord. As Moses writes, the Lord speaks. The second thing he says is that he will never again strike down every living thing as he did in the flood. Rather, as long as the earth is here, it will have all of its regular seasons and they will continue on. The first thing God says is, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And he gives a reason. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's what I was referring to when I said mostly. You see, Noah is not exempt from human sinfulness. Noah's sons and daughters in law are not exempt from human sinfulness. But God will stay his hand of judgment in this world. Instead, he offers to us the same grace and mercy in the hope of the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ that he offered to Noah. Same gospel. It's the gospel Noah believed. This is the gospel you believe. I wanted to take a second as we you look at that last heading, salvation through judgment in Christ, we've, just to reflect on those two things that we've learned and seen about God in this passage. The first thing I would say is that God will judge all sin, even yours, no matter what it takes. 
Who, who would have thought as we read the creation account? Who would have thought as we read of paradise in the garden that God would be willing to decreate that because of your sin? God will judge all sin, even yours, no matter what it takes. Noah worked on the ark and preached the gospel for a hundred years and no one believed. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 17, just as it was written in the day of Noah, just as it was in the day of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. That's himself when he comes in judgment. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You know, of all the wicked things that Jesus could mention sinners doing that would bring about God's judgment in a worldwide flood, why does he mention marrying and giving in marriage? He could have mentioned really ugly things there. You remember from last week, mankind had corrupted marriage. Mankind had corrupted marriage. Marriage given by God. Ruined by man. It could be described as demon-possessed, couldn't it? They had corrupted marriage. They had done violence to God's basic creation ordinance. Jesus says it's the same today. Every intention of the thoughts of the intention of man's heart is only evil continually. But by the grace of God, we do not see every evil action that we could see. But we see enough to know that man's heart is corrupt. And the corruption of sin deceives men and convinces them that there, there is no son of man coming in judgment. They think they, they have time. Oh, I, I have time. I, I have time to see to those things later. Or, or they think that they don't deserve judgment. I, I'm not that bad. I'm as good as he is. Both of those assumptions are wrong. Both of those assumptions are dead wrong. Listen to these words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Oh, I'm my own God. I don't deserve judgment. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I have time. I'm, I'm okay right now. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's a promise. And if that's you, don't delay any longer. Don't delay any longer. Don't be deceived any further. Your sin, yes, you, your sin is deserving of God's judgment and your sin will be judged by God on you or on Christ if you'll call upon his name. 
That's the second thing that I would reflect on here at the end. God does offer salvation. God is offering salvation to you and at his greatest cost. At the height of God's judgment in the flood, we read, but God remembered Noah. When you look to God's just judgment on your sin, when you own your sin, you're meant to come to the conclusion that you need the grace and mercy of God. Come to that conclusion this morning. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which God freely gives to all who believe. You, you think there's a hurdle in front of you. Your hurdle is your sin. Give it to Christ. Believe in the gospel. Believe in judgment on your sin and a way through that judgment who is Christ himself. You see, this but God in Genesis points us to this but God in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. It's not works, friend. It's faith. It's believing in the one who can do the works that you cannot. And your faith in his works accomplished is credited to you as righteousness so that you can begin a righteous walk with God that will never end. Christ on the cross shed his blood to pay the redemption price for sinners. God's just judgment was poured out like a flood on him so that through him, through his sin-atoning death and his life-giving resurrection, we might have life forever with God in paradise. The day of judgment is coming, but today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us. We have we have not not been told that your holiness will not abide our sin. And your judgment upon our sin is sure and certain. But you are the gracious and loving God who seeks to fellowship with, with his people. And you have given us Christ. Father, we thank you for him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.